Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 127 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. On today's show, I talk with Green Beret Eric Burleson, who joins the show to talk about his book, Separating from Service, The Mental Health Handbook. Eric's not a mental health professional, but he recognizes that service members have the responsibility to step up and take the lead in discussing mental health and wellness. More to the point, it's never too early, right? It's never too early to start thinking about these things and start and start um, prioritizing them. It's like when you're going to go downrange to combat and, and you don't like set up your body armor in a gunfight, right? You put those tools in place and you practice using them long before you're ever in, in a combat mission. Um, because you want to be familiar with them. You want to understand what's happening long before you ever get to a point of crisis. And when you become aware of those kinds of situations and, and you develop that sense of what's going on around you, you know how to deploy the tools well and you, you can keep yourself away from a point of crisis. And that's not to say that crises won't occur anyway, but you'll be prepared for it. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast once again. And as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen, learn about veteran mental health and wellness. Um, you know, we often have guests on the show who are mental health professionals, guests who are veterans, guests who are both. Um, my guest today is a veteran, and he does talk about mental health, and he's not a mental health clinician. And so I was really encouraged uh, when I was introduced to Eric Burleson. He and I have had uh, a conversation or two, um, both live and, and on email, and, and really excited about what he's doing. So I'd like to welcome Eric Burleson to the show. Eric, Hello. Hi, thanks, Dwayne. Really glad to be here today. Yeah, glad uh, glad we were able to make the time. So, um, it, you and I talked uh, last time. We talked about your book and and everything else, and and I'd really definitely like to get into that. But before we do that, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so i I grew up in Texas. And enlisted in the Army in 2005, right after I, I graduated from uh, university. And uh, I enlisted because I wanted to go um, straight into uh, Army Special Forces, uh, which was, you know, there were pros and cons to doing that. And, and um, it was a good experience overall. But um, I, I was given some very sage advice from a number of people that I, I did not take that I would probably pass on to some others. But I served for eight years, uh, six years in 5th Special Forces Group. And um, near the end of my term of service, there were um, there were a rash of suicides in my unit. And uh, it, I, I started to feel um, really overwhelmed with everything that I was experiencing with all of these different people. Around me, and I, I I thought to myself, I've 
I, I need to take care of myself. I need to get out of here. Now, a lot of people will, will stay in. They'll find different ways to take care of myself. I think that that was the right decision for me at the time. Um, and when I made that decision, um, I, I immediately started to experience a, a real sense of loss and a real sense of, um, sort of loss of identity and, and loss of, of, of a lifestyle. Um, I was also, uh, I, I also got married immediately prior to leaving the army and uh, decided to go into business school. And right after getting married, my wife got pregnant. So within the course of a year, I got married, moved across the country, left the army, started school, um, and had a baby. <laughs> So here's a pro tip for your for your listeners: don't do that. Right? Spread like, it out. Try, right? try yeah. and stick to one major life right. change at a time. Um, it, it was an, an enormous change, and um, my stress levels really went through the roof. It was an incredibly difficult period of my life, and so I started I started going to therapy to uh, to get some help with it and to address a lot of the the issues and, and the feelings that I was experiencing, especially some of the really dark, frankly, suicidal ideation that I had, um, after I separated and the longer that I, I was in therapy, um, uh, I had a really terrific therapist who, who was patient with me and, and, um, I've always been kind of an intellectually curious person and I wanted to understand what was happening. Like this stuff does, doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It's not magic, right? There's something that's happening with my brain and my mind and my body. And surely it's documented somewhere. And so with his help, I, I did a lot of research on how the mind, uh, how the brain and the mind changes, um, in separation and, and what exactly is going on there. And, um, and he pointed me to this concept called differentiation. It's, it's differentiation of oneself from uh, the closest analog that I could find is the process a person goes through is they differentiate from their family of origin. Right. Like you, you grow up in this one context and then suddenly you change, uh, you leave home and, and everything is really different. The different, the, it turns out that the psychological processes of separating from one's family of origin are very similar to those of separating from the military. Uh, the difference is when you separate from the military, you're not with this huge cohort of people who are going through the same thing, who are going through the same sorts of, uh, life changes as well. Um, and so you don't have that support network. You don't have all those different structures. Um, and so reading up on that process and digging into all the like root roots of that research and in the clinical research, I, um, started blogging in order to make sense of what I was reading and what I was experiencing. And, um, I found that the more that I wrote, the more that I had to write, and so, um, and I'd get feedback from other veterans who, um, the, the material really resonated with, or it didn't quite resonate with, but this is my experience. And so why don't you include some of that? And so I had a unique opportunity to iterate on what I was writing over time. It's like I could write just a little piece of it, put it out there to some other veterans, get some feedback, um, change it a little bit, uh, put it back out there and, and so uh, I built this sort of body of work. And um, when I decided to collect it all together into one book, I just sort of looked at the different content that I had, figured out that they fell into basically three different buckets of content, um, and then filled in some of the chapters, filled in some additional material in there to sort of connect them together and, and pull them together into one cohesive um, Story isn't the right word, but one cohesive uh, con piece of content. And so that's how the book got born. Um, <clears throat> it's called Separating from Service. And the, the word separating in this context is kind of a double entendre. Because although you separate uh, in the, the purely um, specific sense that like one day you're in the military and the next day you're not in the military, there's there's this additional differentiation process of of separating the life that you once had from the life that you are currently living um, and and finding ways to 
incorporate and integrate all the stuff that one learned as a veteran into your daily life consciously uh, in a way that's not going to be super disruptive or or um, crazy making for, for lack of a better word. Uh, I kind of like that word. A lot of people will shy away from uh, cra- using the word crazy in this context. But when, when you get to a point of overwhelm and you're pouring something on yourself that that makes you lose that sense of control, I, I think that it's totally apt. No, you're absolutely right. There is um, obviously the the stigma that goes along with crazy, right? You know, the crazy combat vet and everybody think they knows what that means. Um, sure. And, and maybe they're talking about crazy in the clinical sense, but here you're just talking about regular life craziness, right? Just the, right, the, yeah. the you know, um, everything, you know, everybody's life is crazy to a certain extent because of um, all the different things that are going on. Uh, and I really appreciate that idea of, you know, separating, leaving the service, you know, as somebody reads it and it has that surface meaning, uh, but also the necessity to separate ourselves from what we were um, to become what we are, or what we're going to be. Um, I'd like to go back and, and touch a little bit on um, your military service. Um, you joined, I was actually a recruiter. I've talked about it a couple times on the show, but I was a recruiter in 05, um, and I put in a couple of 18 x-rays, right? That's the, the program that, that you're talking about for, for listeners right. not familiar, um, is that uh, uh, you can enlist and go to basic training, airborne school, special forces selection. There's a training school, or there's a prep school, I think, in there. Um, it was a relatively new program at the time. Um, uh, and, and it started when I was on recruiting. Um, and, and then you went through, um, <laughs> you were in selection the Q course for a long time. So you were either, uh, Intel or a medic, right? Uh, I, I was, um, I think it's probably more accurate to just say I was a problem child. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> I, I wasn't in there long enough to, uh, do medic and I eventually did become an Intel sergeant. Um, but I was a, a combo sergeant, um, and I, I recycled a couple of a couple of phases, and um, had to do those or do those do those over. Uh, not very uncommon, really. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, a lot of guys have to recycle a, a number of phases, and um, eventually made it through and was assigned to Fifth Special Forces Group. And then you hit uh, Fifth Group. 2007 or so right at the beginning of the search or right during the search. Um, and, um, and, and as you and I talked before, I retired, um, out of 10th group and I was there for a couple of years and I've known a number of, uh, green berets and special operators. Um, and that was a very high op tempo time that you spent and you spent the next eight years, um, through, through a lot of different stress. And then, like you said, there towards the end, um, the suicide rate. A lot of people talk about the, the suicide rate in the veteran population. Um, but the special operations community is such a contained element that you sort of, um, it's not widely known outside of that culture that the suicide rate and the stress and the psychological challenges that kind of go along with it, um, uh, how significant they are. Uh, I often say that it takes a long time for, for special forces guys to crack, but when they do, it, it's usually a big explosion and, and leaves a crater and, and probably some casualties. Is that sort of what you started to see there towards the end of your time? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's kind of curious and I will, um, I'll admit sometimes it's, it's difficult to talk about. Um, what it seemed like to me is that there, there were a couple and then there were a number of copycat. And over the years, um, there, there were several more. Um, and it's, it's difficult to, to say, like, is this something that everyone is experiencing or is it something that people are watching and, and then deciding, like the, the sort of copycat, um, phenomena, for lack of a better word. It's, and, and, and there's not a lot of clarity for me. Um, I know that at the time, uh, it was very difficult to get, um, strong behavioral health support. And I know that there have been really tremendous efforts throughout the special operations community to change that. Uh, the reality of it was that our op tempo was so high. We had uh, so much to do. And it, it, there was a perception that if you took a, any kind of real break, either going to SWIC or if you, you said like, I, I need to stay at home for one deployment that, um, that it could be career ending. And, and so 
uh, there was this sense that everyone was sitting between a rock and a hard place. And it was a, a really, uh, it was a difficult place to be if you felt like you were coming near the end of uh, the end of your rope. And so, um, I think it's, I think that, um, we all have a, a point at which, um, we are going to, to break, right? We all have this point of overwhelm. This is something I talk about in the book and, and this point of overwhelm, um, you can be overwhelmed by good things and you can be overwhelmed by bad things. And when you get overwhelmed, it usually manifests in, in one of two different ways. You either want to shut everything down, you know, and withdraw, uh, this can manifest in a lot of kind of depression. You, you, um, remove yourself from any like real, um, any real support or any real uh, interaction from a lot of other people, or you want to blow it up and, and uh, you, you want to break things and you want to um, uh, attack. And, and um, there's a lot of like manic behavior that, that doesn't actually make sense in, in those contexts. And so you can sort of sense when you're uh, going to come to that point of overwhelm because you have impulses to either, just just totally remove yourself or or totally destroy whatever it is you know fight or flight exactly that that sort of um behavior but the thing is is that most people find that um when they're reaching that point of overwhelm what they want to do is is just make the life more compressed you know i just don't want to feel that much intensity i don't want to feel that much um those crazy kind of feelings and get to that point of overwhelm. And so they, they self-medicate or, or they deaden themselves and find ways to, to sort of compress that. And, uh, that's really problematic, uh, because it, it intends to make things a lot more volatile. It intends to make things a lot more, um, a lot more difficult to control ultimately. And so instead, um, what we should be doing is trying to find ways to increase the point of overwhelm, right? It's like I, I say at one point in the book, um, when you're learning to, to lift 200 pounds for the first time, right? Your goal isn't to make 200 pounds feel like 50 pounds. Like that's never going to happen. 200 pounds of metal feels like 200 pounds of metal every time. <laughs> you just get better at lifting 200 pounds. Like you get stronger. You, you get accustomed to experiencing what that weight feels like and, and what it feels like to, to move it around with your body. Um, and it, it, I think that's a, a really, um, uh, apt analogy to, to talking about mental health and developing this kind of resilience. Like it's not saying that you're weak. It's saying that, um, you can, you can be stronger and you can expand your ability to, to feel these things, right? If, I mean, you're a clinician, right? Um, if somebody came in and was like, you know, I just, I just don't want to feel these hard feelings anymore. Uh, if you were to say to them, like, well, that's just not going to happen. You're going to feel these hard feelings forever, but you're going to get better at feeling them and it just won't be that big a deal. They'd be like, you know what? Go after yourself. I'm out of here. I, I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> um, <coughs> they, they'd walk out, they'd walk right out the door, right? But, um, ultimately, that's what we're going for. That's what resilience is, is we're expanding our capacity to feel those things and to deal with them in proper and helpful ways. Yeah. And, and I really like that description and this idea of, um, you know, sort of right on the edge of being overwhelmed. Um, uh, our, our, um, highest tier service members, um, special forces, Navy SEALs and so on, uh, and, and Rangers, of course, um, are, are number one selected for resilience, right? I mean, it, those that aren't resilient don't even get through the initial selection processes. Um, and, and so there's, there's a level of inherent resilience perhaps in, in, um, some, and I'm, I'm speaking very broadly here, but here's the idea. Uh, and then you're trained to be even more resilient, to be, you know, to, to go beyond what you think your boundaries are and, and expand that capacity. So the capacity for, for, you know, say a special forces soldier to be overwhelmed is much, much greater than someone who, you know, um, 
maybe not be, or, or even as time goes on, your ability to sustain that overwhelmed state at year 18 is very different than it was at year two, right? So um, either individually or through time. And so it's growing that capacity to endure stress. And for, for special operations soldiers, really that idea of trying to stay underneath that overwhelmed point, be as close to that overwhelmed point as I can be to operate at the highest level. And it doesn't take much to tip it over that point. And that's where I was, um, this idea of it takes a really long time to get to quote unquote, the breaking point, because the breaking point is so much higher. The capacity is higher. And then when it does happen and you talk about the, um, the copycats and, and there is a contagion effect when it comes to suicide is when one suicide occurs. And then oh, that's a great that, word for it. Yeah. yeah I mean, contagion. because it is, and it is a contagion. And, and I imagine, and, and not knowing the, the specifics, of course, and not needing to get into them, but this idea of, well, man, that guy had it all together. And if he did that, man, I don't even have it together. I don't feel like I have it together as much as it looked like he had it together. And if my team sergeant did it or the sergeant major, you know, took their own life, then then what what possible chance do I have? And that's sort of one of the reasons why this contagion of it's like dominoes. And then this idea of constantly on the treadmill, not being able to get off the treadmill um, and the treadmill speeding up and speeding up. Um, and either you fall flat on your face or like you, you decide, you know what, I'm, I'm reaching my capacity to run at this pace in this distance on this treadmill and I'm going to step away. Talking about mental health in general as a service member, as a veteran, especially in, in, you know, 07 through, you know, about 10 or 11, that was challenging. The whole silent professional thing, that's also even more challenging. The stigma that goes along with, with, you know, just seeking treatment and seeking mental health. Um, and yet you've been very vocal about, you just, you, you know, you talked earlier, I, I went to therapy after I got out of the military, there was suicidal ideation. Um, what is it in you or, or how maybe has it been received that you're speaking vocally about these things when this isn't something that typically Green Berets, Navy SEALs really talk about? Yeah, I'm. thank you for asking that. Um, because it, it's become such a normal, um, part of what I do that, that I forget sometimes, uh, about the stigma. But the whole reason I talk about it so openly is explicitly to fight the stigma, to say that, um, this is a thing that's, that's really normal. This is a thing that everybody experiences and we shouldn't be shaming each other about it. We shouldn't be punishing each other about it. Um, what I've heard from other veterans, uh, well, first of all, <coughs> I, I lost a family member to suicide in, in 2011. This was a couple of years before I separated. By that point, I'd uh, not quite committed to separating, but I was pretty close to, to that decision. And I had a, and basically nobody talked about it with me. Um, I had a very close friend who was an officer who um, gave me an order. He explicitly said, I'm giving you an order to report to uh, the group psychologist. Uh, I made you an appointment. That's your place of duty today. And, and he cleared it with uh, my team leader uh, because he, he was really trying to be proactive and, and, and give me some help. And I think that in a lot of ways, that guy saved my life because I, I was in such shock that I didn't really know how, what to do and, and even that anything was going on for me. Um, he had, he had noticed I'd went to go hang out with him at his house and he, he said that my affect was totally flat as I was talking about this loss in my family and that I, I just wasn't really reacting to anything. He was like, whoa, big red flag. <laughs> so, uh, he kind of, um, encouraged me to go and, and get help. And since then I've, I've seen so much of, of manifestation of this stigma that I thought, you know, how can I, how can I fight this? And one of the ways, just one, is to just be really, really open about this is a thing that I do because it's good health behavior, right? Like you go to a doctor and get checkups on a regular basis because it's good health behavior. You brush your teeth because it's good health behavior, right? Like maybe. Maybe you eat some candy and maybe you eat some burgers and, and some junk food, but by and large, you're trying to, to eat a little bit more vegetables and, 
and take care of your sleep and take care of your, your diet. Taking care of your mental health is, is just as important in many ways more important because it gives you the capacity to think clearly about the other things. Right. And so, um, yeah, there, there is still, um, there still can be some of that stigma. Um, but it's my belief that if we can, uh, communicate to each other that the things that we're experiencing are totally normal, that, um, especially with respect to transition. Um, and, and we touched on this a, a little bit in our previous conversation, but I'm going to dig into it a little bit more. When we go through transition, we've been spending the, you know, several years or if not many years, decades even, um, operating in a, in a particular context, in the military context, a place where we've been since basically late adolescence, where you have all these rules and you have all these structures and everybody's operating from these some same fundamental assumptions and beliefs. And you've been working in that structure for, for a very long time. What happens is your brain looks at this structure, takes in the stimuli and says, okay, um, I'm going to make my thought processes and behaviors more efficient by saying every time I encounter this situation, I'm going to do this every time. See an officer, higher rank, salute. Good morning, sir, whatever, right? Um, every time I see a flag, I'm going to, to salute it. Every time um, somebody says, at ease, I'm going to stand at red rest. Like, the, these are behaviors that become ingrained in you. And I'm, I'm using the really obvious ones, but there are a lot more nuanced ones, right? <clears throat> so suddenly, when we separate the next day, <laughs> literally 24 hours, uh, you're supposed to do the thing, and then the next day you're not supposed to do the thing. They're like all of those things, they don't just go away, right? Your brain has, um, there's a thing called neuroplasticity, and it's the, the capacity for the brain to literally change itself, to restructure itself. Uh, and there are some really amazing stories of brains restructuring themselves to uh, overcome injury and overcome damage. But um, the brain restructures itself in order to make those processes and thought patterns more efficient. So whenever you get out, all of that structure and all of that capacity is still there. Uh, and in the book, I, I liken it to walking in a creek bed, right? You've been walking in this creek bed all your life, and now all of a sudden you're expected to walk on the steep banks right in the middle and not slide up or down. Uh, and <laughs> you just can't do that. <laughs> Um, you're going to slide into it or you're going to have to climb all the way back up and, and start from scratch. That can be a really difficult and like disorienting process to get out of the military and suddenly all of that context has changed. Um, it can feel really overwhelming and really confusing. And why should it be confusing? I grew up in the United States. Like when I went back to Texas, like Texas isn't a foreign country. Everybody was speaking well, English. <laughs> okay, okay. It is Texas. <laughs> it's like another country, but it's it's you know, it's not like I'm I'm moving to a totally different culture. Um but it is a totally different culture. And that's one of the things that can feel so insane about it is like this is a thing that's totally familiar to me. Why does it feel so foreign? Why are my interactions um like off-putting to people? And it I was lucky enough that I, I went through grad school and I was in an MBA program at UT Austin. And uh, a lot of my peers were really uh, very patient with me. Um, <clears throat> you know, when they found out that I'd been in the military and that I'd just been out for a few weeks, they they sort of took what I was saying with a grain of salt and, and some really kind uh, people who've become my close friends would take me aside and be like, you know what, you just really can't talk like that <laughs> F-bombs ain't especially out loud yeah. in class and, and all this sort of stuff and they help walk me patiently through these things that uh that, that were frankly really uh difficult and painful for me to acclimate to um but to get back to your original question um talking about it and being explicit and saying um you know this is a totally normal thing we all go through it but i need a little bit of help um, I need some people who can see things that I can't see to point them out to me. I need some people to walk me through a few things. Um, and, and in fact, most of us, uh, I, I mean, 
were pretty high performing people. People getting out of the military usually know how to do things, uh, how to structure their days, how to um, execute without too many orders, without too much handholding. We're, we're pretty good at what we do. Um, and with just a little bit of help, we can actually transition and do like accelerate our progress and accelerate our um, <clears throat> performance levels. But it, but it takes some of that transition time and it takes some of that acclimation time. Um, my whole purpose for the book is not to address veterans in crisis or in suicide ideation way downstream. Um, like, frankly, if somebody was like, you know, I feel like I'm killing themselves and, and you handed them a copy of my book, like that's utterly inappropriate. Um, instead, I wanted to, to create a vocabulary and to create some structures that would be easy for programs and organizations that are already working with veterans, already working with service members at their point of separation and give them one additional tool to talk about mental health and, and what are sort of best practices uh, for uh, taking care of themselves. Um, one of those, as I say, is therapy. I, I recommend throughout the book, go to therapy, uh, find a veteran specialist. Uh, it doesn't have to be at the VA. It can be at the VA if you want, or there's plenty of other clinics um, like your own that, that specialize in veterans issues. Um, but also, maybe don't drink. Uh, that's really disruptive to sleep. You need sleep to process these emotions. You need sleep to process these changes. Take care of your sleep. Try and get eight hours. You know, you don't have to Maybe you only slept five or six hours while you were in service, but you probably need a lot more in order to really function well. Uh, take care of your diet, exercise. Like these are basic things that can make a tremendous difference in your mental health. Uh, and then also be thoughtful about um, the people that you're surrounding yourself with and, and be thoughtful about how you're behaving um, in any given context. Your first impulse may be to do the thing that you used to do in the military and it may or may not be right. And even if it's the right thing to do, it might be for the wrong reasons. And so if you can um, turn your eyes inward and pay attention to what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what your impulses are and um, what you're doing, you can make some sense and get some clarity on on those things in your life. And, and frankly, you can just grow a lot faster. <clears throat> You know, that uh, that entire identification of where I was and I was at a crisis point and then where I eventually ended up being able to. It, it's so common for you to speak about it that the stigma doesn't even exist. And sometimes you don't even think about it, that it's not there. Um, but two critical points. Yeah, that's exactly in, right. In that, what would it have been had your officer buddy not said, I'm going to send you to the the, you know, group psychologist, but instead... Yeah, dude, you just need to shut that down. You just need to suck it up. You just, I mean, if, if the advice were different or if the counsel were different and not here, do this thing that's, that's supportive. Um, but instead do whatever, you know, just shove it down and don't talk about it. If that was a critical point. And then another one, if you would have gotten out and gone to, uh, college and you hadn't been, um, with people that were gracious and forgiving and, and, but instead they treated you like you were crazy. Like, you know, you're this combat vet and everybody, you know, stay on the other side of the room because he might kill you. All these other things. You, I think, seem to have a, a certain, in, at certain points in your journey, were given sort of the support and the encouragement to step forward. And that turned into you being more able to um, defend against this stigma. Does that seem accurate? Yeah, that absolutely, absolutely. Actually, let's uh, let's touch on that. I was exceptionally lucky, incredibly lucky. Um, one to have that friend that would do that. Two to have the friends that would that would help me in in um, business school. I had a couple of other veteran friends in business school, um, and one of them. Um, wasn't lucky enough. And even it, there were several of us who would try and speak with this person to, uh, to talk about, um, his behavior. And he sort of doubled down on, on the military background, um, uh, and, and wouldn't, would actively resist growing and changing. And, and that was really painful to watch. Um, 
So, so yeah, I was, I definitely had, um, a real, I, I had the privilege of having some close friends who would, uh, help guide me through these things. And it was dumb luck. It was, it was really like, um, these people saw some things and they thought, you know, I, I screw the stigma. I'm just going to try and, and help them out. Or, or maybe, maybe he, he just thought that that was the only real option. If he had said, you know, you really got to just shut this down. I mean, I was already shutting down. I suspect that I would have fallen into a deep depression and either I would have, if I succumbed to that depression, I, I probably would have gotten out of the military um, and it, it probably wouldn't have been under terms that I liked. Um, or I would have fought against that depression, which in itself would have been overwhelming. And I, I think I would have blown it up and maybe that would have led to a suicide or, or, um, led to <coughs> what I call micro suicidal behavior, like a lot of little things that add up to self-destruction, um, self-destructive behavior, reckless behavior. And, Turns out, uh, in the special operations community, there are lots of opportunities to <laughs> behave perhaps recklessly or, or, uh, without much regard to one's safety and health. And, um, yeah, I, I didn't have those things. I had an opportunity to, to speak to this person. And, um, I also got referred to a, a person off post that, that helped me process, um, Actually, I was in such a point of crisis. What she recommended I do was something called EMDR. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, I, I movement desensitization and reprocessing. And, um, she helped me to, to process through the initial shock of, of that loss that, uh, that family suicide I, I was talking about. And, um, and I think that that maybe just took enough of the edge off that I could, process some of the other stuff. And so I, I, I not only had one behavioral health professional, but I had a couple and then I had a couple more whenever I moved to Texas and, and, uh, was getting help there. And that made such a world of difference because I had a couple of different perspectives. I had a couple of, I, I had, um, I had the chance to see a few different, um, techniques of behavioral health uh, and, and see like, oh, these, these all kind of work in different ways and they all kind of address different things. But this is actually really interesting. Um, how, how can I understand these better and use them as a way to, to help myself? Right. Um, but back to your point, being, having those people, um, helping me through those, those crisis situations was incredibly lucky. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that, or I'm, I'm working towards that being more of a common thing, right? Instead of having the, the stigma, the right thing to do is like, oh, just shut that down or, or, um, it's not really that big a deal. You need to just get over it. Actually, I, yeah, I love it when people says, we just need to get over it. Like, okay, hold on a second. What does that mean? What does it mean to get over something? <clears throat> and I, I had a, a few veterans that would send me feedback on my blog like, oh, I'm just not wired this way. I don't feel, I don't have feelings. You just need to get over it. And so I started kind of picking that apart and, and being curious about when people are saying those things. And um, it turns out that getting over it is actually processing through right. emotions. It's getting and through the other side. These. Like right. I would love for mm -hmm. people to get over it. Yeah. That would be amazing mm -hmm. if they would actually like do the things that would help them to get over these things. Um, you, you can't just shut it down. You can't just ignore it. That's not getting over it, right? Like if a fire is in your kitchen, you don't just walk away and be like, ah, whatever. I'm just gonna get over it. That fire will put itself out. No, you, you, you know, put the, um, put the cover over the, uh, over the grease fire and you take your fire extinguisher and, and do all those things. Like you actually address the problem in, in a way that's going to, um, address the flames immediately and minimize the damage and, 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 that's and a, take care of everything. And, and that's a great analogy because even when it gets out of your own ability to handle what that fire is, you call for people who yeah, are even better, right? Like, or know. even better, like, 
I'm not sure if I can put this out by myself, so I'm going to go ahead and call right. him in advance. And, exactly. And I'm going to work on it for a minute while yeah. I'm waiting for more professional help to come. Um, and so that whole, uh, sorry, the, the phrase that I like is, the only way out is through. You, don't, you can only get over it by going through it and processing it and dealing with it. No, that that's exactly right. And I, and I got that sense that the right thing said at critical moments can can put you on a path to to wellness and growth, just as the wrong thing said at critical moments or the wrong thing that's done at critical moments can drive you down. Um, and I get the sense that that's what you're trying to do with your book and your writing. That's definitely what I'm trying to do with this podcast, my books and my writing is to be able to put more of the right things out there so that the right things are there for these critical moments. Um, it's so that it just so happens to be that if somebody is, is approaching stress and somebody, a friend of theirs hands them a copy of your book, that might be the critical thing that is said at a critical moment that puts them on the path of growth and on the path of, of, uh, recovery rather than continuing this path of decline. Hey, actually, that's a, that's a fantastic point. And I think that, um, it's worth noting that anytime a friend or a colleague or a mentor or a supervisor or any of these people um, are trying to interject in, in someone's life. They're well-meaning people. There's, these are good people who are trying to look out for their colleagues, for their battle buddies, for their comrades in arms, for, for their family members. They want to do the right thing. They want to help this person. They may think like, oh, I've got to protect this person's career, so I'm going to tell them to shut it down so that they don't attract too much attention to themselves. That may not be the right thing to do uh, from from a mental health perspective or, or whatever, um, but it's, it's a person who's trying to help. They are actually trying to do the right thing from these people, and I, I think that they're well-meaning, they're good people, um, but they don't have the tools and the resources to really provide proper help. And so by, by putting your book out and by putting my book out and getting them in the hands of the right people at the right times, we're giving them a, uh, a, a structure and a way of approaching this problem that they have some tools that they can, they can help them with. I mean, honestly, if, it, if a team leader was just like, hey, I see that you're getting really stressed, what I want you to do is not drink for the next month. I want you to make sure that you go to sleep and I'm going to enable you to go to sleep at the right time. And, and wake up at the right time. And we're going to tone back your exercise a little bit just to focus on like, um, getting your energy levels in the right place and, and like taking these like little simple modifications to the, to the life, uh, that may make a, a tremendous difference in their capacity to, to grow and to deal with this stressful environment. See, and this is what I appreciate about what you've done. You know, somebody might be listening to this and say, you know, how is this guy not a mental health professional, right? Neuroplasticity and, and EMDR and all these other things. Um, and, and your book is written from a veteran perspective and it's about mental health. Um, and, and things have been changing over the last couple of years, but, um, especially when I first emerged into this space, many people were talking about mental health that had no understanding or no real background about mental health. Um, but, but your book is informed by research. It's reviewed by mental health professionals. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's legit, right? It's not just, you know, I have a brain, so therefore this is what you should do with your brain. Um, <laughs> and, and, and then you've been able to do that, right? That, that, team leader that uh, you know squad leader that's able to say hey these are the things to do to keep crisis from happening and that's what i really appreciate about your book and the work that you're doing is you don't have to be a mental health professional to learn and understand these things any more that you than you have to have a degree in fitness to be able to go to the gym and do proper form right exactly and and um i think that that's a great point that you don't necessarily have to be a therapist or a mental health clinician in order to recognize like these are some behaviors that are not going to promote health and wellness. And these are some behaviors um, that will promote health and wellness, both from an individual perspective and from a unit perspective. You know, I, I we we talk a lot about mental illness and I, I try to reframe it in terms of mental health, like taking care of yourself. but just looking at illness 
um, for a second, you know, there are, are minor kinds of illnesses. Um, the flu used to be a deadly thing. It used to be something that would kill people. And it does still kill people. It's, it's, it's non-trivial, but we think of it as like, ah, oh, the flu that, that sucks, but gives me a couple you, days off of work. Yeah, but you can take care of yourself in, in really simple ways. And it's very unlikely that the flu is going to kill you. You know, the, I don't think that the cold has ever killed anyone, but it feels pretty shitty whenever you've got a cold. Frankly, if everyone were to be like, oh, I'm feeling a lot of mental health stress. I'm going to treat myself as if I had the flu or had a cold. Uh, that would go a really long way to, to helping mental health. It, it's the same kinds of behaviors. Um, go see a doctor. Go see a therapist, even if it's just for a few weeks. Um, take care of your sleep. Take care of your, your exercise. You know, don't push yourself too hard in the exercise. But honestly, a few walks around the block or a few reps uh, in the gym is is really good for your health in, in that context. Uh, eat well, drink lots of fluids, um, avoid alcohol. No, I I hope that nobody's out there getting drunk when they have the flu. I, I probably don't have to say that that's a terrible idea. Well, my so my wife's from Tennessee. She's got <laughs> these hot toddies, right? If you get a oh yeah, bit, yeah, you know, but 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 again, and these are home remedies, right? You know, or, or yeah. whatever it is. But but you're sure. you're you're exactly right. Whenever we start to feel a little bit of, I mean, I, I skipped my allergy medications over the past couple of days and I got them back in and, and, and just when I started feeling the, the beginnings of the allergic reaction, I made sure to take steps to keep it from happening. Same thing. When we start to feel that itch in our throat, um, we start to do these things to keep that from happening, but you're exactly right. We don't do that when it comes to our mental health. And I've said it on the podcast often, but if I were a medical doctor, I'd be an emergency room doc, right? Vets are coming in my office. Spouses right. are coming in my office bleeding from a thousand cuts because it's right at the crisis or before the crisis. And it's starting to change a little bit where they're coming in to say, Hey, things are starting to, you know, I'm feeling a twinge in my knee. You know, let's, let's do some preventive stuff. Yes. Um, but that's, that's, that's exactly right, and, it, and it's a great point. And I'm looking, I'm, I'm approaching it more from a, a general practitioner perspective, or maybe not even a general practitioner, but like maybe you've got a, a, a clinician that, um, you know, your, your local once a year checkup clinic. <laughs> um, it, the general practitioner is, a, is an apt thing. Like go in, check in. Um, talk about maybe the minor things that are happening and, and be proactive about your health, right? Or even, um, learning about it before the point of crisis. I'm, I'm, um, working with a couple of different units to find ways to get this, to, to create a program for those that are separating before their point of separation so that they're, they have these tools and they're aware of them before they experience all of these things. Um, Veterans who have already separated have read my book and said, yeah, this, I, I wish that I had this before because just knowing that these things are going to happen would have made a huge difference for me. I wouldn't have been attacking myself for feeling crazy or for, or for, for feeling overwhelmed. And that's an enormous point. Like, um, we do ourselves a disservice when we're beating ourselves up over having these really normal, um, experiences like you wouldn't beat yourself up over having a flu uh, and not being able to do PT that day like that's that's nonsense <laughs> and, and nobody's gonna hold it against you like man you're you're, you're like vomiting <laughs> no you can't run the same two mile that you used to go to bed what are you doing you know that's uh that's an excellent point and the idea of um, you know getting this information out in a, in the hands of as many people um, as possible. Um, you know, again, definitely before even that they, um, that they separate would be the goal, but you know, it's never too late. Um, you know, unfortunately until it, it, it actually is too late. Or, or more to the point, it's never too early, right? Right. Yeah. It's never too early to start thinking about these things and start and start, um, prioritizing them. It's like, um, when, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a of a um, military analogy, right? There, where like you're you're going to go um, downrange to combat, and and you don't like set up your body armor in a gunfight, right? Right. 
<laughs> yeah. You you put those tools in place and you practice using them long before you're ever in in uh in a combat mission. Um because you want to be familiar with them, you want to understand what's happening long before you ever get to a point of crisis. And I'm sure you've had this experience where you're looking around and you're thinking I've got a feeling that something bad is going to happen soon, but if I can move this person over here and this person over here and put some, you know, point some rifles in the right direction and might be able to just avoid a fight altogether. And right. when you become aware of those kinds of situations and, and you develop that sense of what's going on around you, you know how to deploy the tools well and you, you can um, keep yourself away from a point of crisis uh, far away. And that's not to say that crises won't occur anyway. Obviously, but you'll be, analogy. but you'll have but you'll more prepared. capacity to, to be able to handle it. Um, Absolutely. You know, the, the highest number of veteran suicides, not the highest rate, but the highest number of veteran suicides are occurring, uh, to veterans age 65 and older, right? All of us who are combat veterans will be 65 or older at some point, right? You know, right. me within 20 years, you within 30 something years, but at some point we're going to get to that place where we're even at a, at a higher risk of suicide uh, than we might be. And if we start planning now to not do that when we turn or, or not get there when we turn 66, um, then you're right. Preparation ahead of time. And that's something that veterans can understand. Hey, and I'm glad that you mentioned that age. Um, for any of your older listeners, uh, neuroplasticity is a thing that occurs throughout the lifespan. Right. There are Absolutely. stories of people who in their 90s realized that um, their their right brain processing was not functioning properly, did some simple steps to uh, build that capacity and integrate their left brain and right brain were, were uh, suddenly uh, able to have a much richer and fuller life, more fully experienced their their. Um, all of their emotions are good emotions as well as some of the, the more difficult ones, but it made living much richer. And these are people in their 90s, right? So even if a veteran is in their 60s or 70s, a, a Vietnam-era veteran <coughs> or even a Korean War veteran, um, it's not too late for them to start using these tools and start improving their lives and start um, really living more fully into their full capacity. Because uh, those changes continue to occur throughout their lives. It, it never stops. You're never too old to uh, start making these kinds of changes. Yeah, it puts me in mind. There's this uh, Chinese proverb of uh, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second yeah. best time is to plant it right now, right? And so, yeah, I love um, that. And, and that's exactly true. Uh, this has been great, Eric. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk today. This has been everything that I'd hoped and dreamed. If people wanted to find you, find the book, reach out to you on social media, how can they do that? So um, on social media, on Twitter, I'm at uh, Sep from Service. Um, or you can do at Eric underscore Burleson. Um, you can find the book on Amazon. Uh, it's called Separating from Service, the Mental Health Handbook for Transitioning Veterans. It's got a, uh, a, a pair of friendly looking boots on the cover. Um, you can email me at Eric at separatingfromservice.com. I personally read all of my emails. If you have feedback on the book, I have another email, feedback at separatingfromservice.com. Same type of thing. We only have two different emails just to um, organize and sort of triage the way information comes in. Uh, I I encourage anybody, if they have any feedback or if they want to talk to me, to please reach out through one of those forums. Again, the, the main email is eric at separatingfromservice.com or feedback at separatingfromservice.com. And you can find the book on Amazon. Absolutely. We'll make sure that there's link to the book uh, and also all that contact information on the show notes. Thanks for taking the time today. Absolutely. I, I'm going to say one more thing, just a quick plug. If you are a uh, any kind of mental health professional, if you're running any kind of transition program, or if you belong to a unit that has soldiers transitioning out of the military, please contact me uh, and I can... Um, work with you to to help put together a program that in, that includes this material. Uh, it can really change the way people interact with your program. That's great. We'll make sure to get it out there. All right. Thanks a lot. Dwayne.
You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. A couple of the most recent episodes have been with guests who are not mental health professionals, but are addressing the psychological impact of military service. Not Brent Gleason, Janelle McCauley, or Eric can be described as weak or broken. All three of them have had success in their post-military lives, significant success. What they're all doing is attempting to break down the stereotype against seeking mental health, support, and against the wounded veteran image. This is proof. Talking about mental health in the veteran population does not make people think that all veterans are broken. On the contrary, talking about it proves that they're not. Another point about Eric's story that makes me think things are changing is the reaction by his buddies while he was on active duty in his moment of crisis. First, they recognized that something was wrong. Second, his buddy made him an appointment with the group psychologist. He didn't just suggest that he go or say that he thought it would be a good idea. He made the appointment for him and cleared it with the folks in charge of Eric who let it happen. That's a shift in the way things were even 10 years ago. Then, in graduate school, he had friends who didn't treat him like an object of curiosity or a danger that needed to be avoided. They supported him, and Eric in turn reacted to their support. That's an example that not all non-veterans think veterans are crazy and broken and are willing to reach out and learn more. That makes me hopeful for the future. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST127. If you want to show your support for the work that we're doing, make sure to subscribe in the podcast player of your choice. We're always looking for guests, either veterans or those who support them. You can drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com to recommend guests, or you can go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash guest to fill out a suggestion or request. I'm happy to announce that I've released a paperback version of the first Headspace and Timing book. It's been available on Kindle for a couple of years, but now you can get it along with Combat Vet Don't Mean Crazy. To check it out, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST book. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a practicing therapist, I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic tendency, embrace my ability
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.